So <laughs> when you go out in the door and you, you realize that your garden has disappeared, that tends to, uh, to lend itself to a, a newspaper article or so. Good morning. If you are one of our early birds or if you're just catching us later in the day, well, that's fine too. Here in London, the trains, tubes and streets are busy once again during the middle of the week. However, did we survive commuting before podcasts were invented? Matthew Grant here and this week I am talking to one of the UK's leading authorities and definitely the most enthusiastic person I know on the topic of ground risks, that's landslides, sinkholes, coastal erosion and subsidence. Dr Tim Farewell left Cranfield University a couple of years ago to join Terra Firma which is now part of Dye and Durham. Now we may not have major hurricanes, earthquakes or wildfires here in the UK, at least not yet, but once you've heard what Tim has got to tell us about the state of the ground beneath us you may not look at the British countryside in quite the same way ever again. Uh, for those of you not in the UK, by the way, and wondering what subsidence is, well, it's a gradual collapse or sinking of land, often causing structural damage to a building. Not as dramatic as a sinkhole, but much more widespread. Well, we are delighted to be working with Terra Firma as one of our members of Instec. And if you're not a member and wondering what you're missing out on, then please do email us, hello at instec.london, or contact me, Matthew Grant, via LinkedIn to find out. Now, over to Tim. Tim, or I should say Dr. Tim, farewell. Delighted to have you on this. We've known each other for many years. Uh, you are Director of Science at what is today Diane Durham was previously Terra Firma before Terra Firma was acquired by Diane Durham. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You were previously at Cranfield, joined in January 2020. Uh, Terra Firma, as it was then, was founded in 2015 by Tom Backhouse. I think you said it was originally designed to help people understand the ground risk when they're buying properties, but it's expanded much more now to help uh, insurance companies and banks as well. Uh, and today you're actually covering a whole wide area. I know you're background was in subsidence risk, but you've got to love another whole range of interesting and uh, I guess fairly scary types of grand risk to tell us about. Uh, so welcome. Have I missed anything in that uh, in that introduction? Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great introduction. Thank you so much. Good. And so we talk about grand risk. I mentioned subsidence, but what else should we be thinking about or worrying about if we're looking at assessing that risk? If it's about property, there's probably four types of ground risks that most of our clients um, are concerned about. So subsidence is is one of them, uh, which can lead to cracking in houses. But there are other hidden house hazards in the ground, like um, you know hidden mines and voids. So these holes that are are deep underground and can swallow up parts of uh, houses or or their gardens. So that's one landslides, and that can cause significant damage to property and sometimes even sadly loss of life um then we have coastal erosion where houses fall off the edge of the the cliff into the sea which is uh which is never fun um yeah and uh so sinkholes subsidence mines and voids coastal erosion they're they all play together um and we help our clients understand these risks and how in particular they impact on uk property and to that point i mean is there a way of quantifying how they do impact relative to the other risks maybe we think about more often, such as flood or, or windstorm. I mean, in a broad sense, what's the sort of relative damage caused by ground risks relative to the other types of perils? So ground risks tend to express themselves in a different way to flooding um, or, or windstorms. So 
you know, if you think about a typical flood, uh, often you will get many houses on the same street flooded at the same time. And with subsidence or mines, uh, these types of hazards, it doesn't happen the same. You know, you won't get three houses on the same street leading to a, uh, or expressing subsidence. But what you will get is many more properties across a region uh, tending to subside at the same point in the year. You know, w- when you have a hot and dry summer, you will see you know, numerous properties in the southeast and increasingly the Midlands uh, cracking and, and leading to structural damage. But it won't all be on the same street. Yeah, so I mean, it's one of these things that just happens in the background. I guess unless you experience it personally, it doesn't really make the headlines and does it's a dramatic big sinkhole. And what about the climate risk? Because we're hearing lots of changes happening in other areas. What's the impact of climate change in you know, now or in the future from ground risks generally? If you look at how the climate is changing, and it, we're already in a period of change, there's probably four main changes that we need to bear in mind as they relate to to ground hazards. So the first is that our winters are getting warmer and wetter. Um, the summers are getting hotter and drier. We're having uh, more uh, and, and more extreme weather events. And also sea level is rising inconsistently around the coast. Did you get all those? So four main changes. One, our winters are getting warmer and they are getting wetter. Secondly, summers are getting hotter and they're also getting drier. Thirdly, we're getting more extreme weather events. And fourth, at least here in the UK, the sea level is rising, but inconsistently. Well, we're going to come back to that last point in a moment. So the way that these impact on ground hazards uh, is different depending on the ground hazards. So things like uh, slope stability, so coastal erosion, uh, landslides and sinkholes are, are very much influenced and, and helped on their way by these, these wetter conditions. Whereas subsidence, uh, we're seeing that increase in the number of events being driven by the, the hot and dry summers. Um, so we're, we're tending to, you know, from a, a pretty mild and consistent client to one with many more extremes. And it's those extremes that lead to more ground hazards impacting on UK property. And, and are, we, are we already seeing some meaningful impacts of that? Or is that something that it, you can see the signals, but it's actually really getting to manifest itself in the, in the years ahead? Uh, we're already starting to see signals of that. Um, so, yes, in the property sector, we're already seeing claims happening in, you know, more northern areas, let's put it that way. But also from my work in uh, with infrastructure operators, we're seeing that uh, pipes are failing more in these more uh, northern regions um, in areas you know outside of the southeast, which is known as the home of subsidence. Uh, we're already seeing these ground movements leading to failures in, in roads and pipes, um, as well as houses. And one thing I just want to pick up, and you mentioned in passing there that this, the sea rise is inconsistent. I mean, I tend to think of sea rise, and I think a lot of people probably think in the same way. We sort of assume it's rising everywhere, but your implication is that what different parts of the UK are seeing different rates of increase in sea levels, are they? Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's due to a number of factors. Um, one of those is, 
think way back in time to the Ice Age, and the more northern parts of Britain were covered in really thick ice sheets. And what that did is while they were there, they, they pressed uh, Scotland and northern England kind of down into the upper mantle. And when they melted, uh, we're still on that kind of rebound, the buoyant uh, uprise. So, uh, yeah, sea levels aren't rising quite as fast up in Scotland as they are in the south. Uh, so buy property in Scotland to protect against future sea rises because it's <laughs> it's still still springing back up into the air. Uh, there's some benefits of a, a cold winter, I guess. And and then from an insurance point of view, so somebody that's in an insurance organisation knows this as a problem. Uh, how do they connect the work you're doing to how they can actually use this in in practice, uh, presumably for underwriting and and also I guess some kind of portfolio assessment. Yeah. Look, what we're trying to do is is provide insurance companies with the same information that we provide to the people who are buying the house. So every week we sell thousands of reports to home buyers who are saying, ah, I want to know uh, what risks my property is, is likely to face now and into the future. And, and, and we think it's right that insurance companies and mortgage lenders have access to that same information. If they're all getting financially involved in a property, uh, everyone will want to know, you know, the kind of risks that it, it's at, uh, that it's facing. So while we provide homeowners with a, a PDF report, the way we help insurance companies is, is to give them yeah, effectively a, a lookup table for each address in the UK with a, a large number of columns which describe the level of, of hazard or, or risk that these properties face from the different ground hazards that we cover. And, and so what, what choice do they have? Because I believe Substance for, for sure has a exclusion or a deductible. Last time I heard it was like a thousand pounds. From an insurance point of view, are, are they looking at different prices and also excluding some properties if they think the risk is too high? It really depends on on the company that, that we're working with. And each company has its own approach and uh, kind of almost acceptance of risk. And the way that they deal with it is quite different. And that's one of the things I really like is working with these companies, understanding um, how risk averse or, or otherwise they are and how they want to deal with that. So um, it's almost like as many insurance companies there are, there's that many ways of, of using the data. Um, some of those examples mean that uh, the, the companies will exclude writing in, in just the highest risk uh, subsidence classes. Others will apply additional terms for maybe two or three of those. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it comes down to the risk appetite of the insurance company in question. I don't know if you can name actual names if you can, great. But otherwise, what, can you give a sense of how many companies you're, you're working with just now, how many insurance companies you're working with? So I can't name uh, everyone by any means, but we, we work with a number of companies in this space. So um, alongside um, Address Cloud, we are working with Brit um, and a number of other insurance there uh, companies there. Then also into the lending space, we're helping more and more lenders through our partnership with HomeTrack. Um, so the likes of HSBC. Um, so I think in total, we have about 13 financial institutions at the moment uh, signed up with us. Tim mentioned Address Cloud there as one of the companies that Terra Firma is working with to deliver its data to insurers. I asked Mark Varley, CEO of Address Cloud, about Terra Firma. We have been working with the Terra Firma data for around 18 months and have two leading insurers using this actively for underwriting via the Address Cloud platform and several others evaluating the data. Our clients like the broad range of risks that the Terra Firma model covers. I've known Tim Farewell for five years now. 
He's one of the leading experts on subsidence in the UK, is always happy to share his knowledge and advice, and especially his Lego animations, which really help to bring ground risk to life. And then a quite treated going back to these perils again. So sinkholes, I mean, they, when they kind of make the news, they're quite dramatic. People's gardens disappear. Can you just give a sense of you know, what causes sinkholes and then how prevalent are they? And you know, should we be looking out for sinkholes in our garden or are they sort of geographically uh, constrained? Sure, no, it's, a, it's a great question. The, um, so sinkholes are those terrifying things. You know, you spoke earlier about um, ground hazards not being quite as dramatic as flooding. You know, we don't have the pictures of boats on the streets. Um, but I think sinkholes are about as close as you get to that. Uh, so <laughs> when you go out in the door and you, you realize that your garden has disappeared, that, that tends to, uh, to lend itself to a, a newspaper article or, or so. Um, so they're not very common, um, not compared to subsidence. So subsidence, we have thousands and thousands of claims every year. Sinkholes is, is, is much less than that, thank goodness. And, and the way that they happen, it really depends on what the cause is. Um, and sinkholes itself is, is a very broad term. So in terms of domestic properties, the most common causes are historic mining. Um, so the UK has so many different types of geology and so many different minerals um, which have ex- been exploited, uh, mined and dug for so many years that we have this, this huge history of underground working scattered across the UK. And some of those are well known um, and others, uh, the locations are, are less well known. When we set up Terra Firma, we spent a long time building up a really good uh, uh, set of data on where these old mines are. Um, some of our team, uh, you would go to all these geological surveys and, and, and mining organizations and pull out these antiquated, you know, uh, you know yellowing reports about where mines were and, and digitize those. So understanding where they are is, is the first step. And then how they fail, it's, if you imagine, go back 200 years, once you finish digging this mine, probably the way that you'd fix it is that you would uh, take some wood and you'd, you know, really solid looking wood and, and put that across the opening to the mine and then chuck some soil on top of that and say, job done. And fast forward two year, 200 years and it's, the wood's been rotting for a century or two. Um, and then you have some rainfall event happens, you know, the soil gets heavier and heavier and it's just enough pressure that it can start to push its way through that, that those rotten timbers. And then, you know, you get this depression forming at the surface and that can lead to things collapsing into these underground workings. So that's one, one approach, but there are other mechanisms for natural voids as well. I believe Florida, if we're talking globally for our US listeners, that they've got quite a big sinkhole problem there. That's not mines. That's just that's to do with the underlying rock conditions. Yeah, that's right. So some rocks, you may not believe this, but they're actually quite soluble in water. So over time, as you have running water dripping down, you can form these cave systems. Um, and yeah, there are a number of places around the world which, which lead to very dramatic, huge um, dissolution features opening up, you know, and swallowing up, you know, subsections of a neighborhood and those are those are terrifying um in the uk we have some karstic environments in the northeast um around ripon in particular uh gypsum deposits so you know we do have these soluble features in the uk they aren't quite as big as as in um in central and, and northern america thank goodness well so uh, i guess the lesson from that go out of the garden and 
put some water over your rocks and if they dissolve, you know, you might have a problem. <laughs> not, not quite as simple as that. And then coastal erosion, and we we all seen the dramatic photographs going back, you know, to the point about those of of villages sort of slowly dropping into the, the sea. If you look at the, sort of the UK as a whole, is that a endemic problem? Is, is the UK gradually being nibbled away by the sea and then, you know, a million years' time is going to be much, much smaller than it is? Or, again, is that sort of somewhat more localised? Um, it is more localized and it is, it is happening. So if you look, um, on the eastern side of the country where you see much faster rates of erosion there, um, and this is driven predominantly by the, the geology that is there. Um, and so, you know, some of the work that we've been doing is, is looking at the impact of climate change on those, those rates of erosion and even looking at historical maps and just seeing how far the coast has already eroded, um, since we started making maps of the UK. And it is variable again around the coast. Um, but you know, we've got these, uh, these wonderful photographs from Berlin Gap, um, which just show the rate of erosion it's going back i don't know what you know whether it's 100 meters or more um since the 1900s but it, you know it's significant uh coastal erosion um in those places and then around norfolk as well um it, the coast is is definitely retreating and houses are are certainly falling into the sea just jumping in there that was the burling gap that's b i r l i n g gap that Tim was referring to. It's those massive, big, white cliffs. You've probably seen the photographs near Brighton, south of London. And if you want to see what Tim is referring to, well, Google Burling Gap erosion. Some rather dramatic pictures there. Okay, back to my next question. Yeah, I guess those ones insurers, even the most broadest risk appetite, are going to be saying no to insuring those ones. Well, um, well, here, here's a shout out to any insurance companies listening. You know, if you do insure coastal risks, uh, reach out to us and let us know because um, it's not it's not uncommon when we have a, a home buyer who says that you know, um, yeah, it's been flagged up as in the coastal erosion zone, and who who can I get insurance from? So, so let yeah, me know if you want to insure those risks hotline via tim to your insurer of choice i mean i mean i've seen that myself directly on, on where it asks how far you are from the sea and how high you are i mean there's a very different big difference between being on the edge of the sea when you've got a like a sand a big sand bank next to you versus granite as well isn't there so sometimes the questions are a bit simplistic relative to the the underlying conditions you know in, in, with regard to what the loss potential could be Absolutely. I mean, uh, last summer, my family and I were up in the northeast and we were looking at a number of the old castles there, which have been on those coastal cliffs for centuries. And they don't look like they're moving because they're built on on a massive dolerite, which is really hard rock. Um, and the erosion rate for that is is really, really slow. Um, so, yes, geology is super important for looking at these risks. Yeah. And then you've mentioned in passing a few times about how, where you've got the information from. So so back in 2015, when Tom set up the company, yeah, that's not that long ago. What were insurers doing at that point? I mean, you also have been talking about lenders and, and I guess it's it's uh, the home buyers, solicitors who are helping them with their, their choice. I mean, what were they doing for things like sinkholes and erosion and subsidence? Was, what, what was the sort of data of choice and how have you been able to enhance that going forward in addition to some of the mapping you've been doing? So in the past, the the approach for most insurance companies was they would go around and and try and find information and data from a number of different sources if they were really keen on these different ground risks. But typically, 
you know, people didn't have a full understanding of the ground risks uh, that were, you know, a complete risk understanding of the, the ground risks underneath their feet. So what I was really keen to do when I came uh, to Terra Firma was to build up this national ground risk model, which didn't just look at soil hazards, which were perhaps my my burning passion. Um, but also look at some of the deeper geological risks uh, coming from the, the superficial and bedrock layers. Um, and then even deeper than that, these mining and these uh, these dissolution features and pull it all together in one data set so that you don't have to go to all the different suppliers. You know, we can we can provide you with information on all these hazards just from one source. So it's a kind of combination of you know, the mines themselves that are you know, pretty definitive in terms of you can get the map, certainly you know there's a mine there, and then through to actually, I guess, sort of some kind of assessment or risk assessment, if you've got certain soil conditions, then you're more likely to have subsidence or some of the other problems. So it's a combination That's right. of The other thing facts. that we, we pull on top of it is, of course, the climate layers, and this is becoming increasingly important because, um, as you know, our climate is changing. So the... The traditional approach to assessing risk from subsidence and any of these other hazards um, might well have been to just say, well, where have we suffered loss in the past and use that as the information on which we train our, our future loss models. Um, and that that's proved, you know, moderately effective. But already we're seeing that the climate is shifting. We're getting these hotter, drier summers and they're starting earlier in the year. They're expanding to new regions. So when we when we build our models, we can look at the climate at the, you know, at the time where we've seen these events occur, but then we need to bring in our future climate scenarios for the coming decade and say, well, okay, that was fine. That was in the past. How is the climate changing? So what are the risks today and for the coming years? Um, and how will those change? And then you get a slightly different distribution of risk as a result of that. And what about bringing that you know, into the, like an underwriting year, so like a 12 month period of forecasting. I, mean, I know it's very difficult to forecast the weather with much confidence beyond a few days, but can you sort of look now into the summer and have a view as to whether it's going to be a drier summer or a wetter summer and therefore advise your clients or is that still just too uncertain to have anything conclusive? I, I know there are certainly people who, who do that and probably like most experts on the news, they get it right about 50% of the time um, because it is, um, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really hard to do. Um, and, you know, we go back a couple of years, we had that really, really uh, dry period and then it was followed by you know, incredible amounts of rain in a very short period of time. So it's very hard to predict on a, you know, a, a monthly basis as to, you know, what the year end is going to be. So I guess the approach that we take is we look at the general trends. Um, we can see how it was 20 years ago. We can see how it is today. And we know what the climate uh, models are are telling us. And so we can see the general trajectory. But there's always uncertainty around that for, for local events. And then, Tim, there's a lot of interest now about trying to connect some of the sensors, IoT devices that are being either used or could be deployed with against buildings properly. It's probably more on the larger commercial side, might, probably less relevant for, for residential. But are you seeing anything where it's possible to actually look at changes in the soil conditions that can predict the higher likelihood 
of a loss happening or, or are those still again rather like our question on the on the forecasting the weather is that still not conclusive enough to be useful for underwriting purposes yeah there's some new technologies that's emerging um one of the more exciting areas for me is the use of radar satellites um which is you know it's got a catchy term insar where we can track movements from space um now i've you know used a number of these over the years and they they work really well in some places where you get a good strong reflectance signal so you can track um for example railway lines which are moving downwards or if you build a uh, cross rail across london you can see the settlement of houses um so in contexts like that they work really really well uh, they don't work quite so well when you're looking at seasonal movements uh, due to soil-related shrinkage and swelling, due to you know internal scatter and and all the rest. But it's an area that we're actively exploring and always looking out for um, new ways of filtering the data to try and tease out the signals that we're we're interested in. So I just want to play that back to you because that that's a really fascinating image. So there are satellites up there that can send signals off to railway lines because they are reflective and reasonably flat, you can essentially measure, I guess you could measure the whole of the UK, given the distribution of the rail network, and, and map out what the movement or the vertical movement is of the uh, the ground, could you, if you had a strong enough satellite network to do that? Um, it, well, the satellite network is there, and, and yes, you could do that. The, the issue that you have with railway lines is that they're typically built up on embankments, um, or in valleys. So there, there is some, um, issues with hidden signal and also that it's not re- really reflective of the actual ground, the, you know, the natural ground conditions underneath that railway. Okay. Now you just destroyed my, uh, yeah. Sort of great... I, I, I wish it was as easy as that. <laughs> the other, the other approach that we're playing around with is using rural roads, which again, you get a pretty good reflectance off of. Um, but, uh, uh, they're much more kind of in touch with the soil because they tend to be quite thin. But even there, we get issues with scatter um, outside of the pixels, which muddies the muddies the signal. I can see a, a hackathon coming along for you, Tim, which is like figure out what would be the highest correlation of shiny objects on the Earth that you could then send a signal off that's highly most highly correlated with uh, the soil conditions. But, but I don't think we should go there just now. <laughs> but you might you might get some ideas coming in. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is you were hearing increasingly about liability risk related to climate change. Uh, PG&E, the big utility in California, had a $25 billion liability following the 2018 wildfires because you know, faulty equipment and poor maintenance was tracked back to them and thus, therefore they had to cover a lot of the losses. Uh, what, do, what have you seen where you've seen you know, some sort of secondary impacts of ground risk or you know, any of the four different events you occurred that have actually you know, led to something else happening that might not have been expected? And I don't know whether you model that explicitly in what you're doing. There's a number of uh, interesting stories. Perhaps my favorite is there was a burst water main um, in an area with relatively sandy soil. And what happened was the water company in question got a phone call out to come and fix this water main. And they dutifully did. And they, they drove along and unfortunately fell through the road because the water main itself had kind of washed out all this loose 
loose material into the sewers, forming a void underneath the road. So the the, the truck fell into this road, uh, into the the hole and through the road, um, and in doing so, it fractured a gas main. So they had to evacuate a large number of the people who were living in this area, uh, and all the while the water is still rushing out of this this pipe. Eventually, they managed to uh, to get a crane in, um, turn off the gas uh, some distance back, and winch out the the van from from this hole, um, and and fix the pipe, which is great. But all that time, the water had been you know rushing down the road. Um, leading to flooding of the building at the at the bottom of the hill, which was the local council office. And, um, well, you can probably guess where they kept the local records, the, the paper records in the, in the council building. They were in the basement. Um, so, you know, this this one relatively minor event of, a you know, a burst pipe led to, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of damage because it, it flooded the, the gas network as well. Um, huge disruption for the local area. Uh, it involved the police, the ambulances, um, uh, and, uh, sorry, the fire departments and, um, and caused, you know, disruption to, to local, local, uh, political organizations as well. So, you know, the ground in was a key contributor to that cascading infrastructure failure. If it had happened in a different type of soil, it would have been uh, probably nowhere near as bad. It just shows the interrelationship between the ground infrastructure uh, and um, and failures. That is an incredible chain of events. I'd love to see the claims file on that. I, I, I can, you can always see there's a whole movie's worth to be a crate on the back of that. I hope you've got some copyright on that, Tim. It could be uh, your next your next venture when you decide that you know, life outside of the ground risk is a thing to turn to. But no, thanks for sharing <laughs> that. It's a, it's a reminder, of course, more seriously, that a, a number of these yeah, perils or yeah, natural hazards, whatever they are, do lead on to other act- activities around around the world. So, Tim, in terms of how you're selling this, so you, I know you go direct to insurance companies, but you're also yeah, pretty agnostic about going through third parties. And that's great to see you're working with a number of other members of Instex, such as Address Cloud, Gamma, JBA. How, how does that work for, I guess there's two questions here. If somebody wants to get access to your data, how do they get that, you know, both going direct to you or going through one of the other third party uh, providers that aggregate data together? Sure. I, I think the best way, uh, if anyone is interested in understanding the ground risks, uh, subsidence risk or coastal erosion or, or landslides or these hidden mines and voids, uh, the risks that they and their portfolio face, um, the first step I'd always recommend is to pick up the phone, give me a call or drop me an email or, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, because what I'm always keen for the companies that I work with to do is to understand these physical property, these physical principles in more detail. Um, and I can talk you through those and, and see how you may or may not be at risk from these things. And then, uh, after, after that initial call, what I'd love to do is, is give you access to the data so you can test it against where you have experienced claims because I genuinely believe it will help you make better decisions. Uh, and if it doesn't, well, that's, that's fascinating. It'd be very surprising. Um, but it's always, it's always a, a learning example of, you know, different, uh, insurance companies approaches to, to assessing risk and their, their claims handling and all the rest. But yeah, the first step is, is reach out to me through LinkedIn or, or via email. Um, we can then set you up with the actual data to see if it works for you. 
um, and uh, and proceed from there. But yes, by all means, either go direct or through our partners, which are, you know, Address Cloud, JVA, HomeTrack, Gamma. Good. Well, we'll basically put the links in the episode notes. And of course, you've got a section on our, our website as well. Uh, so just talking about us for a second, it's been great to have you as a as a member. Uh, what was it about what we're up to that encouraged you or encouraged you to encourage Terra Firma or Dan Durham to to sign up? It's one of these things, Matthew, where you've been skirting around on the periphery for a number of years. Um, what I like about the Instech community is it brings together academics, companies, um, insurance companies, all into one space where you can have uh, the kind of conversations that normally you, you're prevented from having at home. No, <laughs> it's uh, it's those those really interesting conversations about these the risks, which you know we are we're sharing across the industry, and and how can we get a better handle on those risks? So I just I love talking with um, insurance companies about these risks and helping them reduce them. So that's that's the main reason we joined. Well, thank you, and you're and you're actually also good enough talking about risks to. Uh, Join us on stage in November when we had a, a, a you know, big audience, given that it was coming up to the end of the year and Christmas and COVID times. Uh, so I imagine you'd have some good discussions there, given how long the bar was staying open afterwards. But, you know, thank you for your support, both you know, actively doing things like this and coming on stage and, and also supporting us as a member. That's been been really useful. I guess if, and then the other question I had for you was you moved from academia into the, the commercial world to, to very different organizations or types of organizations broadly speaking although I, from what i've learned from talking to you i think there's still a very strong research i know there's a very strong research culture in uh, in the terra firma organization but how have you found that from coming out of academia into commercial life uh, look it's been it's been a transition and both worlds have their benefits so what i've loved and really appreciated about um the the decades i spent in academia was that solid grounding in in proper science um, and the community of of learning that that surrounds you and what i really like about the commercial world is this um you know the the can do attitude of so many people and the the um it may sound funny to say this but the time pressures to get things done um to to make a really good decision but to do it in in a time scale that actually helps people um so it's yeah it's been it's been a uh a great journey. I've loved every minute of it. Um, and just trying to marry together solid science with delivering something which really helps people understand ground risks and, and make a better decision. That's what keeps me going. Great. Well, talk about time pressures. I just realized we're getting to the top of the hour, Tim, and I know you've got many things to get back to. So really appreciate you taking the time. I certainly learned a lot uh, and got some good stories out, out of it as well that I can now go and talk to my family about. So thank you very much and look forward to seeing you face to face soon. We're doing our events in March from the 2nd of March is the first one. So hopefully we'll be able to get you, uh, get you back to some of those in the audience this time and then back on stage again before too long. Wonderful. Thank you, Matthew, very much indeed. Well, I learned a lot there and a reminder that it's not always the losses that hit the headlines that we need to be considering when selecting and pricing insurance risk. And we've got a lot going on at Instec, back to live events from the 2nd of March. We've released our member survey on the top concerns and opportunities in innovation in insurance and our climate change risk management report is out on the 24th of February. All this and more on the website www.instec.london or contact me 
Matthew Grant on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.london. London.